From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Chernia. And I'm Nell Larson. Our first guest this morning will be Dr. Kimberly Nicholas, a professor of sustainability science at Lund University in Sweden and author of the new book, Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World. In the book, Nicholas explores finding purpose in a warming world, combining her scientific expertise and her lived personal experiences in a way that is both refreshing and deeply urgent. Then in the second half of the show, we'll speak with David Schiffman. He's a marine biologist and the author of the new book, Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predator. Sharks are some of the most ecologically important, yet most threatened and misunderstood animals on Earth. More often feared than revered, the truth is the approximately 530 different species of sharks are not a danger to us, they're in danger from us. Professor David Schiffman on his book, Why Sharks Matter, in the second part of the show. All that and some news on yet another release of thousands of gallons of crude oil from the Keystone Pipeline in Kansas. Why not? We haven't heard from them. Have we covered this before? Yeah, we did. Well, (laughs) this is the third or fourth time they've had a spill on this. Okay. Environmental awareness and education, right? That's right. with the uh, Keystone (laughs) Pipeline, that's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Chernia. And joining us on the phone now for the first part of the show is Dr. Kimberly Nicholas. She's a professor of sustainability science at Lund University in Sweden. And she'll be talking with us about her new book, Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World. Uh, Dr. Nicholas, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Well, um, I I want to start by asking the really basic question: Why did you write this book? What inspired this particular topic? I wanted to write a book that I wanted my friends to read. Really, um, I started working on this book in 2017, and at that time, I had a great group of friends from college who we could talk about everything we had been through, ups and downs of life and jobs and children and a spouse dying from cancer and divorce. So we could talk about really all the big and important stuff, but we really hadn't talked about climate change. And this is, you know, my life's work. And I wanted to make a story that was accessible and could draw people into the conversation because we really need everybody engaging in climate action now. And and why do you think it is that so many people kind of um, part? Yeah, I guess feel that same thing or participate in that same thing where you think about climate change, or you're worried about climate change, but you don't really talk about climate change. Right. Is it, I, I got to jump in. It, do you think it's harder to talk about climate change than it is to talk about divorce mm. and, and death and cancer? <laughs> I think uh, maybe it is. so. Yeah, <laughs> maybe so. I mean, so thank you too for hosting those conversations. They're really important. <laughs> Um, we know from research that most Americans are concerned or alarmed about climate change. More than two-thirds of Americans fit in that category. But we also know that most people don't think or talk about climate change very often. Most people aren't hearing about it too much in the media. So again, your show and others like it are really important. And we know that people don't you know, struggle to find ways to bring climate conversations into their daily lives. So I guess by writing Under the Sky We Make and trying to have a personal lens on climate change and show how, for me, really every day is kind of lived through a lens of climate change. And there's so many entry points to talk about it. And basically, everything we love and care about 
is threatened by climate change. And that's why it's so important for all of us to engage in the ways that we can, because it really is so central to determining life on Earth. And, and whatever, you don't have to be a climate expert to uh, care about the future or animals or kids or justice or health or, you know, really everything is, is so linked. So I was trying to make those links clear through some of the stories I told. It's interesting you say that, you know, everything that we are engaged in uh, either is affected by climate change or we have potentially an impact on the climate. Do you think that can also be a challenge because it gets a little overwhelming at times? You know, because, oh, my goodness, I, I left these lights on and, and now, you know, I'm adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere or, or I'm idling. Uh, while I'm sitting in traffic, it's just, it just it, it, does it get over? Is that another reason why people kind of turn off from the conversation because it's so overwhelming? Yes, I mean it's definitely easy to get overwhelmed because the climate crisis is a really big problem. We've collectively, world leaders and those in power have been ignoring or doing too little for such a long time that it's of course making the problem worse, but. We know that real problems don't go away if we don't face up to them. And one thing that's, I think, helpful is kind of breaking down what we need to know into the simplest, least, you know, the smallest uh, accurate unit. So, for example, all the science that you really need to know about climate change is it's warming, it's us, we're sure, it's bad, we can fix it. <laughs> That's what the science tells us. So people, I think one one reason that people sometimes feel overwhelmed is that they feel a pressure to understand every last detail of all of the science. And for those who are interested, I think that's wonderful and you know definitely welcome that. But for those who want to be more engaged on the action side, that's great. And you can get started with a really strong scientific basis behind you from just those five points already. And you know, the scientists have done, our job to establish those. So it's not the ordinary person's job to have to hash out those points. We really need people using the skills that they have uh, to actually leave fossil fuels in the ground, make this fast and fair transition to a fossil free world. When we think about individuals taking action, um, what is it that really makes a difference? You know, do those small individual actions um, make a significant and meaningful difference. So, you know, Chris mentioned, you know, idling, you know, a car or, um, you know, maybe just making small switches in your day-to-day -day life using, you know, less electricity. Um, is that meaningful? What we do does really matter. And one thing I'm trying to do is... Ooh. Excuse me. Okay. One thing I'm trying to do is, is help people figure out how to make the best use of our limited time and energy. So I focus on five roles that we can play in taking high impact climate action. One of those is as a consumer. And for those of us who are uh, top consumers or over consumers, that those choices do really matter. We also have really important roles to play as role models and how we affect others as investors, how we spend our time and money to support climate solutions instead of pollution, as professionals, the way we spend our working lives, and as citizens, how we engage politically and collectively. Mm. So in, in each of these five roles, there's just a handful of really high impact actions and focusing on those is what's really needed right now so that we don't waste our time worrying about leaving the lights on. Um, there it's much more high impact to 
find a way to skip a flight or to drive less because those are much more impactful than the energy and, and, and climate pollution from leaving the lights on. So it's really about directing our energy where it makes the biggest difference. And I think that provides a little bit of relief when you think about everything that you could and should be doing to be, you know, the the perfect climate aware citizen that is overwhelming. Um, and so having kind of a, a framework to work through where to prioritize your time and maybe more importantly, your energy um, is helpful. What kind of feedback have you been getting from the general public about this? I think people are hungry for solutions. I mean, people are seeing and living the impact of the climate crisis with their own eyes and their own lives now. It It's no longer the problem of future generations or some other people or places far away, but it's really hitting close to home. I mean, 80% of Americans have experienced a climate extreme in the last year. Mm. So it, it, it's it's people are aware and are increasingly concerned and alarmed and want to engage. And I think most people want to help and want to know how they can take meaningful action in a manageable way as part of their daily life. So something I'm, I'm promoting is getting people to think about spending 20 minutes a day on these five areas of high impact climate action and, and really doing it systematically. And this would be a great thing to think about, for example, for the new year, 2023. How is it we're approaching these things? And, and basically, kind of going through the list. And once you've done the high impact things, you don't have to keep doing them. I mean, many of them, some of them are ongoing, but but many of them are kind of one-time things. So for example, I used to be a frequent flyer and I realized that that was by far the biggest part of my consumption carbon footprint. So that role as a consumer, because I was a frequent flyer, I was part of the 1% of people on earth who cause half of the climate pollution from flying. Hmm. And we know that Flying has been increasing. There aren't good technological solutions to reduce emissions from flying. All emissions have to go to zero as fast as possible. So we actually have to be flying less. And that was the single biggest thing that I did was to kind of reconfigure my life to cut my flying more than 90% and actually find some romance wow. along the way. I ended up taking the train to Paris with my now husband as our fourth date and then having a, a train-based wedding over about a month across <laughs> North America. Mm. So a lot of good things came out of these, this decision as well. Right. That's really interesting. Uh, I mean, you must have been flying a lot to cut it back 90%. But those are the types of actions that have to be taken. And some people would say, well, you know what, that, that's too much of a sacrifice. You know, I, I, re I recycle my cardboard and uh, I bring a reusable bag to the supermarket. But you know, I, I still need to fly to, uh, I don't know, Sapporo to go skiing. And I'm trying to put it in Park City terms. And, uh, um, you know, Stad for my biking vacation. Um, so it, it, it really, everybody has their own limits as to what they want and can do or prefer to do with respect yeah. to. But I do believe that after 16 years of this show, we need to make bigger sacrifices on our, who we are as consumers of energy and products and services. Uh, and that, that can be a big ask. Yeah, it's really important to have these conversations. And we know that historically, I mean, in the 90s, the quote was, you know, the American way of life is not up for negotiation. And this has been a major sticking point in climate action because 
we've made a fundamental mistake and we've confused energy consumption with having a good life. Mm -hmm. What we actually need to have a good life is to have our needs met, to have a warm, comfortable place to call home, the, the needs that we have to have food on the table to provide for our families, to have the time to enjoy them, to have meaningful relationships, to do work that is helping others and actually providing meaning. And these things are not synonymous with emitting 20 or 50 tons of greenhouse gases a year. And in fact, there are many ways to have a really great life at a much lower carbon footprint. So I think, for example, you know, when you talked about flying to enjoy the outdoors, I mean, we know that time in nature is good for our physical and mental health. It can be really renewing and exciting, but there are definitely ways to do that and to have adventures closer to home. I've been really inspired by some of my own students and others who, for example, have had huge adventures. One friend biked from grad school at, in California uh, from Stanford down to the tip of South America over two years. Another student of mine built a handmade raft and rafted his way through Denmark. So people are definitely having you know, great time and adventure in the outdoors in very low carbon ways. And these are some of the kind of cultural shifts that we need to create space for in order to basically make this fast and fair transition to have enough resources available for everybody to have a good life, which is not how things are working right now on planet Earth, mm. uh, and leave fossil fuels in the ground. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Kimberly Nicholas, a professor of sustainability science at Lund University in Sweden, and also the author of the new book, Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World. And I want to shift gears a little bit um, to get back to that human piece of this and sort of the emotions and feelings wrapped up with climate change and all that comes with it. I think that there's a lot of fear and anxiety and um, you pointed out, you know, that there's grief for some of the things that we're losing. And and I think I, I kind of have a two-part question. First is as a scientist, how do you begin to take on this emotional piece of the equation? And then secondly, what, what are some recommendations for dealing with those difficult emotions that come up when we think about climate change? Yeah, well, dealing with climate emotions is definitely a process. It's been a journey for me that I'm certainly still on. It was not at all talked about during my scientific training. Mm -hmm. um, but now, thankfully, it is part of the conversation because we realize and see that we're living through really some climate trauma. And even those of us like myself, who have a lot of privilege uh, from education and a secure job and plenty of other advantages, but you know, that insulate us from the front lines of impacts, we're still experiencing a lot of climate loss. I write about, for example, worrying that the wine that I studied for my PhD in my hometown of Sonoma, the taste of wine is changing because of climate change. And that's a piece of identity and culture that is important to me and that I'm, I fear and, and grieve the idea of losing. So yes, I mean, it, it's not, uh, the world can still keep turning and Wine is actually not necessary for life, uh, so <laughs> there are certainly more fundamental threats from climate change, but that's just one personal one that hits really close to home. So I guess going through those those personal experiences kind of forced me to grapple with it. And, and the way that I've faced that is basically from what I've learned from, for example, losing a dear friend to cancer and other lessons that life has thrown at me, that you need community, you need support, and you have to give space to all these feelings. I, I talk about these sort of five stages of 
radical climate acceptance. And that's not about giving up, but it's about facing reality as it is to do what you can and let go of what you can't control. So you have to go from ignorance and avoidance and doom, which are the first stages, Mm -hmm. through all the feels. And that's where you actually give space for grief and anger and also creativity and compassion and courage and, you know, all everything. We're not trying to cut anything off the table and actually listening to those feelings and following them is where you can align your actions with your purpose. And that feels really good. So that's an ongoing process, basically. And the things that support that are the things that support us in life in general and in in our uh, health. So it's, you know, having strong relationships, taking care of our physical and mental health, doing things that make us feel good, getting outside, exercise. All those things that, you know, your mom (laughs) tells you to do and and we all probably know and less time on social media, perhaps for me. Um, So we know what tools work and we know how to harness them and sort of being there for each other is a huge part of it. Okay. Uh, In in the remaining few minutes, you're born and raised here in the States, California, Uh, went to school here in the States. Now you're teaching uh, in Sweden, and I, I, I suppose, you know, like you say, travel around through Europe. First, how do how do Swedes uh, uh, act differently or, or address this issue, if they do, differently than, say, typical Americans? Is there a difference? There's definitely a difference that I, I noticed, I would say, in the, the general level of... and headlines and daily conversation and media and culture, uh, films and so on in Sweden, for example, than what I see in uh, the U.S. where I'm from, in Canada, where my husband is and his family live. Um, so you, you do see that difference. But I think there are some, and of course, there's some structural advantages, I would say. I mean, in terms of um, having denser cities and better and in past investment in public infrastructure like trains it's easier to get around without a car in europe um so those are clear differences um but i guess there's also i mean i see so much energy now in the u.s and uh continuing to build i mean there have been some big climate wins recently with the inflation reduction act which is expected to reduce emissions about 40 percent by 2030 we need to go even faster but that's a huge step in the right direction um, and people are really waking up to this and seeing, you know, both from our role as consumers, but also as citizens, as investors, professionals, role models, how we talk and act on climate. I see a huge increase in interest and awareness and engagement. And I, I think that's really positive. Well, uh, Chris and I are looking at each other here. I'll jump in. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask um, about uh, a personal story. You you call yourself a turkey heiress. Um, <laughs> and can you talk a little bit about your, your family's legacy in the agricultural industry and, and kind of how that influenced your work and, and the writing of this book? Sure. So always the, I, this comes up around Thanksgiving because my <laughs> grandfather, George, my father's father, uh, together with his wife, Johnny, actually bred what's called the Nicholas Broad-Breasted White Turkey. And that became the main 
meat turkey in the world. So it's if you ate turkey for Thanksgiving, you probably ate Grandpa George's turkey. Um, it <laughs> I love was, that. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, there's there's a lot of family history and pride in this story, but there's also a darker side, which is it's basically Grandpa George who helped invent the sister, system of factory farming for turkeys. Mm -hmm. So breeding a turkey that would grow really quickly, that would be very efficient at converting feed into uh, turkey meat that people can eat. But to the extent that the breast of the turkey is so large, it, the male and the female don't fit together, so they can't reproduce naturally. So mm. it's somebody's job to go around artificially inseminating turkeys. Um, just as an example of how, you know, kind of this, how uh, far away from natural cycles and working with nature instead of against it that agriculture has become. And this is important for climate because you know, about the majority, almost 90% of carbon pollution from human activity comes from burning coal, oil, and gas. But the remaining comes from deforestation. And most of the, a large fraction, about a quarter or a third of total climate pollution comes from agriculture. Yeah. So it's how we use land, disturb soil, deforest, and, and change land cover. And a lot of this is because of this industrial system of agriculture and an overconsumption of meat, which is really resource intensive. So basically, a lot of my research is on sustainable agriculture, how to actually have agriculture that can feed the world and also keep the planet intact and uh, not be, as agriculture is now, the biggest driver of biodiversity loss. Well, we, we have to wrap up, but I got to I gotta re remember this. The, the five, I really like the, the five ways we can uh, each, on a, on a personal level, address or, or fix climate change as better consumers as as role models as investors as uh professionals are in our in our careers and finally as uh better citizens uh, i guess um as far as being more active politically or socially or so with respect to climate change education do i have those right Exactly. Yeah, you get an A, Chris. Thank you. Quick learner. I took good notes for once. Um, Great. But and I actually write about those every month. I write a, a newsletter called We Can Fix It can on the website it. Substack. And there I'm really breaking down, similar to in the book, but concrete actions. It's on the facts, feelings, and actions to face the climate crisis. And I would use this five-role framework to suggest specific actions or organizations to support every month. Well, uh, uh, Kimberly Nicholas, professor of sustainability science at uh, Lund University in Sweden, author of the new book, Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World. We, we want to thank you for taking the time to join us this morning on this green earth. Thank you both for the work you're doing, and thanks so much for having me. All right. So uh, let's take a break uh, for a couple of days. When we come back, we'll be turning our attention to... Why not? Sharks. One of our favorite topics, but Is we it? rarely talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, that's kind of counterintuitive. Yes, but <laughs> yes why, and the, actually, Why Sharks Matter, uh, a, a, a new book by Professor David Schiffman. It's This Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. I'm Nell Larson. And joining us for the second part of the show is David Schiffman. 
He is a uh, marine conservation biologist and author of the new book, Why Sharks Matter, A Deep Dive with the World's Most Misunderstood Predator. Uh, Professor Schiffman, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, first of all, I want to tell you, the book is great. And Nell and I oh, truly, a lot. The, truly appreciate the way it's laid <laughs> out because each... Each section is laid out as uh, literally as an interview question. So we're just going <laughs> to, it's perfect art. Try to make perfect. it easy for you. Yeah, exactly. Can we cover the whole book in the next 30 uh, minutes? No. <laughs> well, we will try, but I do want to spend the first five minutes, let's say that, first five minutes or so on shark facts, basics, you know, some of the, the, the realities and, of course, myths, most importantly, myths with respect to sharks. In the intro, I, I, uh, we said that there's some 530 different species of sharks that we know of, right? Like any animals. Or Isn't that wild? And there's a new species of shark, skate, ray, or chimera, close relatives of the sharks, discovered somewhere in the world every two weeks. Wow. Every two weeks. So uh, let's log in another 25 or so. And that's here. been going on for a, at least a decade. Okay. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about their extent. Uh, all oceans, Arctic, Antarctic, everywhere? So I'm, I'm actually going to Antarctica in a few weeks, and uh, there are no sharks there. There are skates, oh. which are close relative, but there are Arctic sharks. Uh, one of my favorites of those is the Greenland shark. These are the, the deep-sea Arctic animals that can live to be over 400 years old. They're the longest-lived vertebrate animal mm. on Earth. And uh, they eat polar bears. So super cool animal. 400 years old. That's, eat polar bears. That's banana. Okay. <laughs> well, not exclusively. But. Not exclusively. <laughs> uh, they, but yeah, they are, they are super cool animals. They can get 18, 20 feet long. Uh, there are some sharks that live on coral reefs. There are some sharks that live in the deepest part of the ocean where it's so dark that sunlight never reaches and they right. generate their own light. Uh, there are some sharks that live on seagrass beds. There are some sharks that live in fresh water. So it's, it's a really incredibly biodiverse and well-adapted group of animals, which makes the conservation challenges that they're facing around the world today all the more sad. And, and there, I, there are sharks that were swimming in the ocean not only before there were dinosaurs on land, but before there were trees on land. So a really ancient group. And you just remind me talking about the you know deep sea uh, types of, of sharks. I believe years ago we had a, uh, a marine biologist. I think it was Dr. Edie Witter. She oh uh, yes oh you know her okay. And with talking about giant squids and yeah, she does a lot yes. of deep sea research. But she mentioned something called a cookie cutter shark, which to this yes. day still fascinates me beyond belief uh, because of its nature of way how it attacks its its prey. Yes, so cookie cutter sharks engage in what's called micropredation. And what that means is they don't eat a whole animal. They take a bite out of it and swim away. And they have these very round, razor sharp teeth. Of, that's why they're called cookie cutter sharks. They basically take, like, like putting a cookie cutter through dough, uh, and they take bites out of whales or larger sharks or tunas and swordfish, or in a few cases recently, humans. Uh, if you've ever seen the extremely bad but extremely watchable uh, movie Shark Night 3D, uh, <laughs> that one of the one of the sharks that uh, they they get to attack people is cookie cutter sharks. That's when they they have a a cage off the side of the boat at night and they light up this person and 
Yeah. So cookie cutter sharks are super cool. And there have been in recent years, the first ever confirmed reports of them biting people. But mm. you don't have to worry about this. A hundred percent of these incidents occurred with people who were swimming between islands over deep sea trenches at night while being brightly lit from above by spotlights. Oh. So if uh, if you don't do that, you're safe from cookie cutters. <laughs> I'll try to avoid that right. scenario. We're good. We're good here. <laughs> so, you know, you talk about this really diverse habitat um, that these many different species of sharks can inhabit. How are these populations doing um, as a whole? Hmm. Not well. Mm. Uh, sharks are some of the most threatened vertebrate animals in the world. Uh, the, the, it's, the problem is so bad and getting worse so fast that the numbers in my book are actually already out of date. It's already worse than that. Wow. Uh, so now the latest numbers say that about a third of all known species of sharks and their relatives, the skates, rays, and chimeras, are considered threatened with extinction, according to the IUCN Red List. Wow. Some populations have declined by 90% or more in my parents' lifetime. And again, these are animals that have been swimming in the oceans for hundreds of millions of years. So really bad news. What are those primary um, impacts causing this? The number one threat to sharks and their relatives, which is so much bigger than all the others that there's functionally not really a number two threat, is overfishing. It's humans. We are killing sharks, uh, both on, both accidentally through what's called bycatch. Mm -hmm. um, that's when you accidentally catch a sea turtle or a, or a dolphin or a shark that's swimming near the tuna you're trying to catch. And intentionally, which provides shark fins for the shark fin soup market, which many people have heard of, and also provides shark meat to the shark meat market which many people have not heard of. And that's a problem because that's a bigger threat to many species. Yeah, I want to spend a, a little time on the shark meat industry because do we both knowingly eat shark and sometimes do we unknowingly eat shark? Yeah, so there are some, in terms of unknowingly, there are some issues with uh, both mislabeling of, and and clever cutesy market laboring, mm. uh, labeling. If you were to go to a fancy seafood restaurant and see slime head on the menu, you probably wouldn't order it. But when they call it orange ruffy, suddenly it's a $50 a plate exciting special, and that's the same animal. So in some cases, it's an issue of market labeling. In some cases, it's an issue of claiming that it's something else when it's really that. If you're ever at like a Long John Silver's level of quality of seafood restaurant and you see suspiciously cheap fried scallops on the menu, mm. that's not scallop, that's stingray or skate wing. Uh, in, the, in the United Kingdom, at a fish and chip stop, shops, sometimes you'll see rock salmon on the menu. There's no such thing as a rock salmon. That is a, that is a dogfish shark. So sometimes it's that, but also things like thresher shark and mako shark are very commonly available at seafood markets, Mako less so lately, uh, at least from the Atlantic population that's been overfished and endangered. But at my parents' grocery store in Florida, there are two or three kinds of shark meat for sale at their community grocery store. Wow. Wow. And is, that's allowed here in the States? I, I thought maybe there would be Absolutely. some regular... Okay. Oh, yeah. The United States is one of the largest shark fishing nations in the world. Um, that always It always shocks me when I talk to members of the ocean conservation community and they say, like, I, I'm very knowledgeable about this. I pay, I pay very close attention to this. But obviously, all shark fishing is illegal, right? If I see someone fishing for sharks, they're breaking the law. And very much not illegal. Um, in many cases, does not need to be illegal. But it's it's weird to me. How many people say, I follow this closely, I know a lot about it, and they don't know basic facts like that? 
Uh, well, that add us, add me to that list. Yeah. I, you know, I just default to, oh, it's China. And it's uh, yeah. So know, there's a, there's a new report yeah. that just came out actually yesterday um, about blue sharks, which are an open ocean species. They're one of the most heavily fished species of sharks, and it found that Spain and Portugal are some of the worst offenders in uh, overfishing of this species. And there there are lots there are lots of people who uh, the they they believe that ocean conservation is primarily a problem by people who don't look like us who live really far away, but. The United States has some issues with with this stuff. You may have heard about uh, the the North Atlantic right whales resulting in, in uh, issues with lobster fishing off New England. But Spain and Portugal are some of the worst defenders of unsustainable overfishing, and I never seem to see them demonized on social media the same way I see China and Japan attacked. Right. Well, well, speaking of demonizing in the media, one of the questions that we wanted to ask you, we wanted to talk a little bit about is how sharks are portrayed themselves. in the media, you know, themselves and kind of human perception of them. Um, I, it, I definitely think there is um, some element of demonizing when we think about sharks, because what do we hear about the most? shark attacks, like right. the, the rare shark mm -hmm. attack. But um, I'm curious about, you know, just your thoughts on how sharks are portrayed in the media, even in um, maybe settings like Shark Week or something like that. Mm. <laughs> oh, man, it has been an interesting uh, week on social media talking about Shark Week. One of our, our new paper analyzing problems with that came out and got attacked on Fox News and some alt-right news sites. And oh. it's, it's been it's been a week. But uh, the sharks are not portrayed well in the media. Uh, a, a study in 2012 found that less than 10% of news stories about sharks even mentioned that they face conservation challenges at all. Most are about sharks biting people, as you note. My favorite fact about media coverage of sharks' bites uh, found that in Australia, in, a, uh, in about a third of all reported shark attacks, uh, the shark did not physically touch the human at all. Oh. It swam near them in the way the human reported as feeling threatened. Oh. Um, and But that gets reported everywhere in the world as breaking news that they're, oh my God, the sharks are at it again, nuke the oceans, it's the only way to be sure. Uh, and that's that leads to a lot of... Uh, it makes it hard to convince people that we need to save these animals. Yeah, yeah. So while while we're on the topic, let's set the record straight. What? How common or rare are shark attacks? <laughs> More people are bitten by other people on the New York City subway system every year than are bitten by sharks in the whole world. More people die in a typical year falling off a cliff while trying to take a selfie of the scenery behind them than are killed by sharks. This mm. is just not something that you need to worry about. And because of the ecosystem services that sharks provide, we're better off with healthy shark populations off our coast than we are without them. Right. Uh, let me reintroduce you and we'll get into that. We're speaking with uh, Professor David Schiffman. He's the author of the new book, Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predator. So, yes, let's let's spend a few minutes now talking about the value, the importance that sharks bring to ecosystems, marine ecosystems. Um, educate us on that. Sure. Well, predators help keep the food chain in balance. Uh, they keep prey populations from exploding out of control. They eat the sick, the weak, and the dying. Uh, through something called fear ecology, they can have major impacts on the structure and function of an ecosystem. Fear ecology is when the even possible presence of a predator 
causes whole populations of prey to change where they eat and how they eat mm. and where they go. Um, so predators are really, really important to a healthy functioning ecosystem. And when we're talking about the ocean, this is a series of ecosystems that gives billions of humans food security and gives tens of millions of humans jobs. So we very much want our oceans and our coasts to be healthy. And that means keeping the food chain healthy. And that means keeping the top of the food chain healthy. Right. So uh, let's uh, let's take that to extreme. Uh, let's say they disappear. What happens to the ecosystem? So it's very difficult to predict uh, things like that, but it's likely to be very, very bad and probably weird and unexpected. Mm. There's something called a trophic cascade mm -hmm. that happens when it's basically the unraveling of a food web and it leads to interact or organisms that didn't previously interact at all affecting each other. So one example of this is off the Pacific Northwest coast uh, where a you know, you've all seen sea otters uh, lying on their backs eat, uh, uh, with food on their tummies. It's very cute. Uh, so they eat sea urchins and sea urchins eat kelp among other things. Kelp make these giant three-dimensional habitats off the west coast of the U.S. and other places called kelp forests that are home to hundreds of species of animals. So when you lose sea otters, the urchin population explodes and grows out of control and they eat all the kelp. And suddenly there's no home for all these species. Even though the sea otters didn't directly interact with the kelp and didn't directly interact with all the species that live in the kelp forest, the loss of sea otters affected those animals. So that sort of thing can be very, very hard to predict, but it's almost always going to be very bad. Okay. And um, have we have we identified uh, extinctions of, of sharks? I mean, how many? You say there, there's lots, there's hundreds threatened. Um, do we have any known extinctions of them? So the first reported likely extinction of sharks uh, came right after my, my book came out. Oh. So I wasn't able to include it in there. But there's a species that is, I think, somewhat poetically called the lost shark. Oh. And basically it was described uh, by a specimen caught a few decades ago and it has not been seen since. So we know it existed in modern human times because there's a specimen of one sitting in, the, in a sample jar. But no one's seen one in my lifetime. And... People have been looking, so it's mm. there are there are some likely extinctions and some likely um, sure. near extinctions. What I find really haunting is that there are there are species that go extinct before scientists ever even know they existed. Right. Um, so who knows? It's hard to measure what you lose if you don't know it's there. Right. Well, let's shift topics a little bit to how how do we help how do we save these really vulnerable um, species of sharks um, and maybe we start with the policy piece of that surrounding fishing um, because because we've already talked about that a little bit you know if we're overfishing and we're impacting sharks via bycatch and ecosystem impacts what what can we do there how much do we need to do there yes so Sharks and their relatives face a lot of very, very serious challenges, but the good news is we know what to do to fix them. Mm. Scientists and managers know what policy tools work. We know when they work. We know when they don't work. We know when the, what they need to work. We know when they need your help to help them work. Um, and that's actually a big part of the reason why I wanted to write this book, because there's never before been a book that is accessible to the public 
that covers those topics in any degree of detail. If you look at some of the other popular science books about sharks, they're basically collections of fun facts about sharks. And then on the last page, it says, sharks are in trouble, they need your help, don't eat shark fin soup. And most people reading these books are probably already not eating shark fin soup. So right. that's not an especially actionable uh, request. Mm. So there are lots of different policy tools that are out there. And I, I wanted to introduce people to the, the world of uh, opportunities that are there because so many people tell me that they're surprised that I, they, again, I follow ocean conservation closely. I subscribe to all these mailing lists and I've never heard of this. And I've never heard that this was a thing you could do. And I've never heard this is what all scientists support. Um, so I, I, I advise people to be very careful about where they're getting their information from because there are lots of sources of extremism and misinformation in this space. Going back to, uh, I know we're kind of bouncing around, but going back to the shark finning, uh, it, it, are we seeing encouraging news or efforts with respect to uh, addressing that issue? So there was actually just huge news um, at what's called CITES, which is the Convention right. on International Trade in Endangered Species that was in Panama in November. Um, it's a once every three years global meeting. And they just uh, succeeded in getting all of the species of what are called requiem sharks and all of the species of hammerhead sharks listed under CITES Appendix 2. And this gets legalese and boring very quickly, but the upshot here is what that means is shark species that collectively represent about 90% of the global shark fin trade are now required to be regulated and monitored in a way that they were not before, or that part of the trade needs to be shut down. So this is this is very and really either of those options is better than unregulated, unsustainable fishing. So uh, I, I'm very optimistic about what the next few years are going to need for sharks because of these recent successes at CITES. Like you say, we we know what to do. Um, the scientists that study sharks can direct point us in the right direction. Um, do you think that there is sort of like the public or political will to continue to make changes like this? I hope so. I've been traveling around the world talking about sharks and talking about this book <laughs> this year. I just completed my 50th talk as part of as part of this. And everywhere I go, I meet people who want to learn more and want to help. And I'm optimistic about that because that was not really a thing 20 years ago. <laughs> 20 years ago, we were just we were basically just trying to convince people, no, actually, sharks are not trying to eat you. And we've <laughs> moved on to sharks are not trying to eat you and they're important, mm. and we should want them around, and there are ways that you can help. And that feels like progress to me. On a slightly smaller scale from like the large policy solutions that we're talking about, are there things that we can be uh, like, that we can do in our day-to-day -day lives or be aware of in our day-to-day -day lives? You know, maybe starting with what we buy when we go to the grocery store, but- Yeah, like orange roughy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the, the number one threat facing sharks and their relatives, as well as many other marine animals, is unsustainable overfishing. So the most effective thing that most people can do to help save sharks and help save the ocean is don't support unsustainable seafood. Notice I'm not saying we all have to give up seafood immediately and become vegan or else the ocean is doomed, as you may have heard in some, <laughs> uh, some extremist groups claim. That's just not true. If you want to give up seafood, that's certainly a valid choice. But sustainable seafood exists, and supporting that helps. Uh, if you love seafood like I do, it's healthy, it's nutritious, it can be culturally important. There are ways to get seafood that is caught in a way that does not harm sharks or other marine life. 
And how do we find that? How, as a you know everyday consumer, how do you find out what's the most sustainable way to get something, or how do you confirm that something is sustainable? What like what resources would you point us to? There's a lot of greenwashing in this space, so you mm. do have to be careful. But a guide like the Monterey Bay Aquarium's Seafood Watch right. uh, are great. You tell it where you live. And it gives you a list of seafood commonly available in your area organized into green, which is this is environmentally friendly, eat it, and it's not a big deal, um, to this is a yellow, yellow list, every once in a while it's okay, but don't make a habit of it, to red list, which is maybe order the chicken instead because this is a problem. <laughs> uh, there are also eco-labels like the Marine Stewardship Council certification, which is a little blue check mark that looks like a f- uh, that looks like a fish. If you see that, you know that the seafood underwent some some rigorous standard setting and testing. All right, uh, just a few more minutes. I do want to circle back to the um, um, challenges that sharks face. You mentioned man is the, its biggest challenge. Does, is climate change playing a role in shark populations and and uh, species diversity, et cetera? Yeah. So climate change is a huge threat to many marine systems and and a lot of marine life. But it's just not that big a deal to most shark species because they can just move. Uh, If an area is not suitable for them anymore, they can just sort of go somewhere else. Uh, I actually had a very, I tell this story in the book, but I I faced a very particular hell uh, that's specific to science teachers where I saw some of my own research misquoted on an ad that I had to walk by every day to go to work. Uh, The the Washington, D.C. Metro, our, our light rail subway system, had a series of ads right when I moved here in 2019 the, touting the carbon footprint benefits of public transit. And they were things like climate change is going to be bad for hops production, save happy hour, take metro, things like that. And one of the things was climate change is going to make sharks bite more, uh, <gasps> keep the sharks at bay, take metro. And I spent months looking into it and I found out they were citing some research that I was a co-author on to justify this. And it was not true. Uh, so uh, it's a very particular uh, daily torture. <laughs> Uh, that only ever seems to happen to me. <laughs> seems very, uh, very niche. Yeah. <laughs> well, although, you know, if I was a shark, I would probably want to bite humans because that's climate change is a human, another human-based <laughs> issue. Uh, so, so I get a little, I'm a little upset. Um, okay, last last couple minutes. Uh, talk again about your you're going to Antarctica. Um, yes. And what are you looking for there? That is totally vacation. Uh, that is not a, not a work trip. I'm just going on vacation to a place I've never been before and have always wanted to go with my dad. Very excited about that. Uh, but we're going with this ecotourism company, and they have scientists on board who I'm going to get to meet with. Uh, but we're going to be looking for whales and penguins and seals and all kinds of other birds, and it'll, it should be amazing. Amazing. Um, well, I, I wanted to just ask if you would maybe comment on like the, t- the tone of the book, um, because it's unique. It's not um, a dry science book. Um, I can tell our listeners that there is a photo of you wearing a shark suit at a conference oh, yeah. inside That's here. That's my Amazon <laughs> author photo. <laughs> uh, so 
I, I wanted that Why Sharks Matter is a very, very different kind of shark book. As I mentioned earlier, it systematically goes over all the different laws and policies and ways for people to help and organizations that are helping and how you can learn more about them and all that. But I wanted to make it accessible and not only understandable to the two people that don't have a PhD who aren't and who aren't environmental lawyers, but interesting and engaging and make people want to read it. And I've been I. I gotten a, a lot of uh, positive feedback on how that turned out and i'm glad to hear you enjoyed it and i hope your listeners will too well uh david schiffman he is a uh, con marine conservation biologist i think your bio said you were you teaching at arizona state university is that still correct yes okay. which is not necessarily the first thing you think about when you think about <laughs> marine biology <laughs> although you're not far from the gulf of uh california but uh <laughs> exactly yeah we're very close to the ocean just ocean in mexico surprising okay. yeah exactly but he's most importantly he's the author of the new book why sharks matter a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predator uh david a website that people can go to learn more about you and your work I am on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Why Sharks Matter, also the title of the book. Um, and I'm always happy to answer any questions that anyone has about sharks or marine biology. All right. Thank you again so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Okay. Uh, let's take one more break for an underwriter or two. That's right. All right. And we'll be back with hopefully a quick news item. It's This Green Earth. All right. We got, uh, we got a minute or so. Yeah. You got you got to be quick. All right, here here's the thing. Yeah, we can <laughs> spend more time. Minute, Keystone second. pipeline spill. Another one. Uh, this was fourteen thousand barrels of oil spill, which is a lot. Dave, but but the problem is, most people don't know what fourteen thousand barrels right. of oil is, right? So forty two gallons per per barrel. That's the oil industry's number. That is almost five hundred eighty thousand gallons of oil that were spilled from this pipeline. Um, over they they don't understand. Still trying to figure out over what time span, but 580,000 gallons of oil that is equivalent to. I got this other thing you, you see, all those tanker trucks rolling up and down, right? For, that they hold roughly 200 barrels per truck. So imagine Ooh. 70 of those trucks slamming into each other and they all spill their oil. That's how much oil was spilled out of this pipeline. Okay, all right, we'll get more on that. Developing story. Just, just wanted to share numbers on that. Yeah. And, and that, do you have, can you add a little bit of information regarding our first guest? Yeah. Think, yes. You know, we thought that um, this was such a nice sort of synopsis of the, of the book. Um, the book, of course, being Under the Sky We Make, How to Be Human in a Warming World. And um, Dr. Kimberly Nicholas was asked, you know, what do you hope readers take away from this book? And she said she wants it to serve as a one-stop shop to help take readers from feeling overwhelmed and freaked out to empowered and clear on how they can personally be part of the solution to stop climate breakdown. And so she's boiled down the evidence to the most effective and high impact ways to spend your limited time and energy. And then also to tell a human story by linking you know, facts, feelings, and actions. So it's a unique book about climate, and, and we really enjoyed learning about it. Yeah, it was great. I'm, I'm glad we, we added that. But now we're out of time, and we have to wrap up. You can email us your thoughts, comments, and ideas for future shows to thisgreenearth at kpcw.org. The interviews for this show will be posted on the KPCW website later today. And uh, we encourage you not only to listen to those, but to reach out and tell us what you want to hear about in future shows. So yeah, that's how we get a lot of our guests. That's right. 
so, so hey, be in touch. You got an idea? <laughs> Talk to our producer showrunner, Claire Wiley. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us. And remember, this is KPCW 91.7 FM, Park City.